0: Let's pray. God, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts, that you would teach us what you want to say, that we would respond in obedience, and that we would be drawn closer to you. We ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, Lord willing, we're going to work our way through Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9, which technically is one chapter less than we covered last week, but um, by word count, it's actually longer. So, you know, whatever. Um, do with that what you will. But, uh, we've talked about before, but it bears repeating. Hebrews is a very distinct book in the New Testament because it's, uh, it's written primarily to a Jewish Christian audience, okay? And it's important that we keep that in mind because otherwise the book is very confusing because we like to read this, we like to read books in America, in a linear progression, right? There should be the the intro, the argument, and the conclusion. There ought to be, you know, point A, B, C, and they ought to all feed into each other. And this book is not written that way. This book is written from an Eastern cultural context. This book is written to people who have grown up in a Middle Eastern world. And so the goal is not to make a straight line progression. The goal, we said it before, it's like, uh, it's like putting a tire on a car. You do not put the bolts on... In a circle, you don't go 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. You go 1, 4, 2, 5, 3, 6 because the goal is not for it to make sense in your mind how the bolts go on. The goal is for the tire to fit on well. And that's the approach that Eastern writing takes. And so the book of Hebrews is not going to say, okay, point A, point B, point C. The book of Hebrews uh, is honestly a little bit of a pinball machine, right? Like, you know, it's just going all over the place, but it has a central theme it does have, if you will, a that it is putting on the axle, and that is that Jesus Christ is better. And the author of this book, we're not sure who it is, but we know that the Holy Spirit is writing through the person that he chose to use. The author of this book is making a point of emphasis specifically to Jewish Christians, saying Jesus Christ is better. And then from that point, he's going to go and, and point out these different things. Jesus Christ is better than the angels. He's better than... Moses, he's better than Abraham, he's better than the law, he's better than the prophets. And where we find ourselves tonight is an idea that he's been really hinting at throughout the entire book, Um, but he's going to make a point that Jesus Christ is better than the priesthood, and he's actually better than the high priest. He's not just better than the high priest, he is a high priest. And as high priest, he is better than every other high priest that's ever existed. And it's a radical thought that we have to be careful not to miss, because most of us, I think all of us probably, did not grow up in anything that would resemble an Orthodox Jewish family. Okay, and so the idea of, well, oh, we sin, there's a sacrificial system, there's a priesthood in order, uh, enacted in order to help deal with our sins, most of us haven't lived with that as a regular part of our existence. But to the Jewish world, especially in the first century, that was what, that was what redemption and atonement and all the ideas of not having to live in perpetual condemnation for your sin, all tied back into. It was all about the priesthood and the sacrificial system. And so the author is making an incredibly audacious claim. Okay, he's not saying Jesus is really good. He's not saying Jesus is a great moral teacher. He's not saying Jesus is a wise sage. He's not saying Jesus is one of many you know, uh, spiritual leaders, he's making a very distinct claim that Jesus Christ stands above everyone and everything else, okay, and so tonight we find ourselves breaking down specifically the idea that Jesus Christ is better than the priesthood, he's better than the high priest, he is a better high priest, and so what we're going to do, we're going to start in chapter 7, the first 10 verses are super confusing, and so it's kind of a toss-up game of whether or not I want to read them and leave you confused, and then explain it, or explain it, and leave you wondering why I'm spending so much time on it, and then get to it, and then you understand. So what I think I'm going to do is read it, explain it, and probably read it again. So chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren. Though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. There's really no need to elaborate on that, so I think we could just move to verse 11. But, just for kicks. Alright, what's he talking about? Well, he says, this Melchizedek. Well, who is this Melchizedek? Well, I'm glad you asked. But, specifically, what he's kind of, because he's pinballing all over the place, right? He's made this point earlier, so in his mind he doesn't need to preface it by a whole lot. So, speaking of Melchizedek, well, we haven't talked about Melchizedek in a couple chapters. But, specifically, he's referencing a prophecy in Psalm 110. Where the Lord, speaking through David, says of the Messiah, "You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." Okay, and, he's, and the author here is making a point that David prophesied that the coming Messiah would be a priest of a different order than the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood—you had the nation of Israel was formed up of twelve tribes. One of the tribes named was the tribe of Levi, and from that tribe was ascended the priest. Okay, when, when the Old Testament law was handed down, God said the priests are going to be from the tribe of Levite. Nobody else gets to be a priest. And David, prophesying, either 500, or 500 years later, says that the Messiah will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So there's an implication in the Old Testament that when the Messiah comes, he'll be a priest, but he's not going to be a priest quite like what the Jewish people were used to. Okay? And so the author is using that to explain a point. So he goes back and he says, now let's talk about Melchizedek. So let's talk about Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up in the scriptures in the book of Genesis chapter 14, and he's only in there for three verses. Okay, I'll read it to you. Verse, chapter 14, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him. That's Abraham, at the time named Abram. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. That's it. That is everything we have about Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. And then David comes along a thousand years after Abraham and says, You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek prophesying about the Messiah. And so... The author of Hebrews is going to back up and say, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Messiah is going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? So he says, understand a couple of things. His name means king of righteousness. But Genesis tells us he's the king of Salem, which is the derivative of the same word as shalom, the king of, which is the Hebrew word for peace. He's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And it says that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now some people take this to say <clears throat> that Melchizedek is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. That's certainly possible. Some people also take this to say that what the author is just making a point, that the guy just shows up on the scene. And really every other major figure in the scriptures, we have an understanding of where they come from, particularly in the Old Testament. Right? Moses. Well, you can trace Moses all the way back to Adam, right? David, you can trace him all the way back to Adam, right? There's a couple of the minor prophets who we don't have a ton of information on, but most of the, the really significant spiritual leaders in the history of the nation of Israel, it tells us who they are, who their parents were, who their grandparents were, and once you get a couple pieced together, you can say, okay, yep, he goes right through this tribe, he goes right through, you know, through Jacob, and then through Isaac, and then through Abraham, and all the way up to Adam, Okay? Melchizedek just shows up on the scene. We have no idea who he is. And the author says in verse 6, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And now he makes a point here about priesthood. And this is, again, one of those things that we sort of have a hard time wrapping our heads around in a Western world. But he says, think about this. The priest in the Old Testament were to receive a tithe from the people. Okay, the people were supposed to bring a tenth of their money and it was supposed to go to the priest. The priests were not supposed to have to do, uh, the priests were supposed to be basically so busy doing the work of God that they weren't going to have time or resources to take care of of business and be entrepreneurs and whatever else. So the Lord said, I want the people's provision to cover for the priest. Okay, so the people were supposed to bring money to the priest. And that was called a tithe. Genesis tells us that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, in the context of where Genesis 14 is at, basically Abraham had a nephew who kind of left, got mixed up with a, with a pretty rough and tumble city. That city and a couple other cities banded together to go to war with another group against another tribe. Basically you had four kings against five kings. They're really almost tribe leaders at that point. They're more like city-states. And Abraham's nephew Lot was captured. And basically everybody was on their way to being sold into slavery. And Abraham took the guys from his family, the guys in his household, went after them in the middle of the night, beat the bad guys, rescued the other bad guys who were still, you know, the good or bad guys, whatever, and brought them home. And on his way home, he's got all the spoils of war, and he meets Melchizedek. And he gives Melchizedek a tithe. And the author makes a point here in Hebrews. he says, "Now consider how great this man was, that even Abraham would give him a tithe. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. To the Jewish people, Abraham is the man. Right And truthfully, I mean, we would still say, even as Christians, Abraham is one of the most significant figures in all of human history, right? Uh, every monotheistic religion. On earth is descended from Abraham. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all have come through the line of Abraham. That's a pretty significant impact on world history, right? Abraham is, he's impacted a lot of things. He's a significant dude. And the author says, yeah, but Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And tithes are given to people who are greater, okay? We pay taxes to the government because the government is bigger than we are right? There's, there's, it's, it's forced coercion is what it is, right? Nicely put. It's, it's legalized theft. That's what taxation is, and it's understood that, okay, there's maybe some perks that come with it, but really the reason we pay our taxes is because the government is meaner than we are. The government has more resources to come after us and make us decide, you know, there's a point where we say, you know, it is easier to just pay the government than it is to not pay the government. It's just like paying off a bully, except they have more legal backing, right? But the same idea is there. So the greater gets the money. But in a gifting context, the same idea is there. You give to something greater. You give money to a cause that's greater than yourself or to a leader who's greater, who's got a greater vision or a greater calling, okay? That's sort of the idea of tithing. And, and he's, the author is saying here, think about this. The Levites, the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, were supposed to get a tithe from the people to basically pay for their ministry. He says, now think about this. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And here's where the author makes a connection that we've got to pay attention to. He says, because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, that means Levi gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And here's how he draws that conclusion. Because in the Eastern world, nobody ever stands alone. Nobody is ever, you know, in our world right now, you are the center of your universe. That's sort of how we like to to push the agenda, right? The world should revolve around you. Well, in the Eastern world, that's stupid because you only exist because of your parents. And they only exist because of their parents. There's, There's a much greater sense of I am part of a lineage, right? I have come from someone. And no matter how impressive you are to an Eastern mindset in particular, you're never greater than your parents, because you owe your existence to them, right? doesn't matter how famous or rich you are, your, parent, your mom is still your mom and she can still call you up and chew you out if she so desires. Because she's your mom. She's greater than you because she gave birth to you, right? You owe your existence to someone greater than you. You did not cause your parents to have you. You didn't talk them into it. You didn't compel them into it, right? You were born because they made an action that you were actually not a voter in. They decided. And that's kind of how you wound up coming. So, the idea, particularly, sorry. These things get weird. There we go. We think. The idea, in an Eastern mindset, is that Levi, as a direct descendant of Abraham, is the Great grandson, the tribe of Levi, in essence, by being uh, subservient to Abraham or being lesser than Abraham, is in effect paying a tithe to Melchizedek. Okay, so he's making a point that when David says in Psalm one ten that the Messiah will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, what David is saying is that the Messiah is going to be a priest according to a higher priesthood. According to a priesthood that is greater than what was currently in place in ancient Israel. Okay? And you can kind of say, does any of this really matter? It does, and we'll get there. But, for the sake of kind of trying to wrap it up, let's read, having said all that, read through it again, and we'll try and make it make sense. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, Who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, that's speaking of Melchizedek, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom those things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies... You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So he says, okay, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, if, if the Levitical priesthood that God handed down to Moses in the, in the wilderness was sufficient for all religious needs, then why did David prophesy and say you're going to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek? That's what the author is saying here. Saying, Okay, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, then why did David give this prophecy? And his sort of his duh, therefore, is the point is the Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. Okay, and what's he say here? Down in verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. The Old Testament law never made a single person perfect righteous. What it did was demonstrate very successfully every person's sinfulness, okay? That's the purpose of the law. The law does not make you holy. The law proves you're a sinner. It proves that you are guilty. It proves that you are cut off from the presence of God, and that your efforts do not hack it. So, He's making a point specifically, and he's going to build it down to the rest of chapter 7, that one of the big, one of the main key elements of Melchizedek's priesthood is that it's perpetual. Okay, Melchizedek shows up on the scene. We have no idea when his priesthood started or when it ended. Right? There's 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 not a point of beginning or a point of end. And he's saying in the same way, the messianic priesthood is going to endure forever. And that's a key part of David's prophecy when he says you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that is a couple of things, okay? It establishes that if you have the right priest, we don't need to keep cycling through. But it also enables Jesus Christ to be the king and the priest. He can be the ruler over everything, but he can also be the mediator to bring us into the presence of God. And if that isn't according to the priesthood of Melchizedek, then Jesus Christ is out of line. This is really important because according to the law, only men from the tribe of Levi could be priests. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He's from the line of the kings. So genealogically, genetically, as a human being, he had the right to be king. But if he's going to be a priest according to the Levitical priesthood, he does not have the right to be priest. And we have two examples in the Old Testament of men who, tried to, who were kings who tried to be priests. We have the example of Saul. We have the example of Uzziah. And in both cases, God was very severe in dealing with them because he wanted to be very clear. There is, you are not the king priest. You are the king. You are not the priest. That is not your role. I have not handed that to you. You cannot step into that role. Because it wasn't for them to take. It was for someone else. It was for Jesus Christ to take. And he takes it by trans. Wrong word. By going over, surpassing, that's the one, surpassing the Levitical priesthood by demonstrating that he's greater and in going into a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And the author is saying, Melchizedek, he shows up on the scene, we know that he's a king and a priest. And if Jesus Christ is a priest according to that order, according to that priesthood, then he can be a priest and a king. And so he builds the idea, carries it on. Tell him I said hi. Verse 20, and inasmuch as as he was not made priest without an oath, for they had become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he And because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Okay, in this passage, chapter 7 in particular, this passage in particular, of chapter 7 in particular, of the book of Hebrews in particular, is a great point to just back up and remind you that no church teaching is ever going to sufficiently unpack a passage of Scripture. And so if you come to church and church is your whole spiritual experience, you are just, uh, you're, you're being completely foolish. If you think that you're going to unpack everything that's in here in the amount of time that we're going through. That is why church should be a very helpful addition to what is taking place in your life and in your time with the Word of God. Okay? This verse, right, this, this passage is so... Massive and its implications that you could just sit on it forever and never come to fully understand all that's there. Okay? And so, because we can't do it in all of time, we will also not do it in three minutes. But, nevertheless, it won't be for lack of trying. But he makes a point that the Lord has sworn and will not relent. This is part of Psalm 110. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. And he says, understand this, a key part of David's prophecy about the Messiah coming according to the priesthood of Melchizedek, one of the critical components of that is that the Lord swore an oath. And that's critical because in chapter 6, we're told that it is impossible for God to lie. Okay, so the author here says, get this, get this very, very closely. Do not zone out for this, he says. God made an oath that the Messiah's priesthood would be sufficient forever. And so when Jesus becomes the high priest, when he become, when he steps into that role through his resurrection, he's not priest for a while. He's not priest for now. He's priest forever. And what that means is that the terms of the bargain never Change. Do you understand? God does not owe us constancy. God does not owe us consistency, right? We we expect it because He's so good at being so faithful, right? There is no reason on earth why the sun should rise. There is no reason on earth, uh, as G.K. Chesterton said, the only thing on earth that makes me think that an egg will turn into a chicken is the fact that I've seen it a million times. But there's absolutely nothing. Nothing about an egg that suggests there's a chicken in there. Except for the fact that I've seen it over and over and over again. But, I mean, it, it's, it's, how on earth does that lump of thing, I mean, you crack them in your pan, I eat them all the time, and I never think, that looks just like a chicken. Like, because it doesn't. There's nothing about an egg that suggests it'll become a chicken, but it does, all the time. Why? Because God is consistent. But God does not owe us consistency. God created the laws of nature. He is not subject to them. He can bend them as often as he wants. And praise the Lord, he loves to bend them sometimes for miraculous healings and to show his power and his glory and to edify the church. But he doesn't owe us anything. It would be completely appropriate, if God so desired, for him to change the terms of what's required to come to him as often as he wanted. He has every right to do that. He's the creator. Right? It would be completely appropriate for God to say, okay, here's what you have to do to come to me. And then say, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> that was the 2022 bylaws. We have 2023 bylaws now. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's no longer recognized. Yeah, no, your Visa card expired. Uh, you, know, you know, sorry. Well, now we don't do the swipe, we do the chip, right? We do like, we do the tap. Like, everything in our world, it's always like, well, you know, let's change it a little bit. Let's refine this because cultures change. God has every right to do that. But He didn't. And in fact, he made an oath that he not only will not, but Scripture says cannot break, that Jesus Christ will be sufficient forever. Okay? And now the author then goes on to the end of that paragraph and makes a point. He says, there were very many priests. I listened to one pastor this week. He said, if you read Jewish history, which I haven't, there have been just under 350 high priests from the time that the law of Moses came was given to the time that Jesus came that's a lot of high priest and he says they they were prevented from continuing by death right that makes sense right like that's kind of sooner or later high priests just kind of knock off you know they just kind of it happens right it happens to the best of them but they die and they don't get to keep being high priest priest priests die sometimes they're and sometimes they're you know it's a great priest who served the Lord faithfully and he died and we might mourn that he's gone or it was an evil priest and we might rejoice that he's gone. And say, finally, maybe we can get back to, you know, to, to biblical truth. But the author says, and that's kind of a problem with the system, don't you think? Maybe the Levitical priesthood isn't actually complete. Maybe God knew what he was doing when he gave David the inspiration to prophesy that, and understand that God has sworn that there will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, according to a higher and better priesthood. And so he says, because, and also verse 27, he does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. When a high priest would would offer sacrifices for the people, the first thing he had to do was cleanse himself because he was sinful, right? He He had to get himself cleaned up Before he could then represent the people before the Lord. And the author says, yeah, but Jesus doesn't have to do that. Because, end of verse 27, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He completed it. Right? He did offer a sacrifice. The priests would offer a sacrifice to make themselves cleansed. Jesus offered himself a sacrifice to demonstrate his worthiness and that he was already clean he didn't need to be cleansed because he had no blemish okay but the priest would offer the sacrifice for himself offer the sacrifice for the people and then sin again and have to do the same thing over and over again jesus does not have to do that he offered it once to demonstrate it and now that is forever sufficient so for chapter eight he's going to continue the idea and he finally kind of gives us like a straight old fashioned western thought here Now, the main point of the things we are saying is this. Everybody's like, finally. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. He says, The main point is that we have such a high priest. The main point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better. Not that he is better than the high priest. He is a better high priest. The role of the priest is to represent the people before the presence of God. And the author says that is what we have in the person and in the character of Jesus Christ. We have someone who represents us before God. And he does not have to atone for his own sins He's not out of the presence of God and then getting cleaned up so we can get into the presence of God, so he can get us into the presence of God. He's there. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. He is right there in the presence of God. The sacrifice that he offered was so sufficient that there is no need for him to do it over again. And so he's making this point here that, you know, the old priest, man, they were always, always had to be bringing things. They always had to be coming in the temple and getting themselves cleansed. And Jesus does not. Because he has now obtained, verse 6, a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And Jesus is our connection to God the Father, to our Creator. And he does that through a better covenant, a better promise... It's not about the law because the law never made anything perfect. It just points out our sinfulness. It's a better covenant and it's established on better promises because it endures forever. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here the author quotes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, where the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And interestingly, the word covenant there also translates testament. Testament. So it very literally could read, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new testament with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And so the Lord is prophesying at the time of Jeremiah, saying there's going to be a new covenant, because the author here says the first covenant is, not, is lacking in perfection. Do not misunderstand this to think that the Old Testament is bad. Do not misunderstand this to think the Old Testament is somehow an inferior part of of the Word of God. Okay? The author is paying immense respect to the Old Testament. Just like we talked about, whatever it was, two weeks ago. You know, the author says Jesus Christ is better than the angels. He's not diminishing the glory of the angels. He's emphasizing the glory of Christ. The Old Testament is written by the breath and the finger of God. It's the testament of God's faithfulness to unfaithful people. The Old Testament, if you want to watch the grace of God on display over and over and over again, the Old Testament history is a wonderful place to learn about it. If you want to be encouraged that you are not the only loser out there, because I was, was not saying say that you're not a loser, but that's not true because we're all spiritual losers. If you want to be encouraged that you're not the only one out there, go to the Old Testament. It is full of the stories and the histories of people who should have known better, and stumbled, and still received the grace of God through repentance and through faith. Okay? The Old Testament has immense value, but the Old Testament's job is not to make you righteous. It is not to make you complete. It is to point you to the coming priesthood. It is to point you to the coming one who will make you complete. And in this prophecy in Jeremiah, what the Lord says is there's not going to be a point at which... There's going to be a point at which I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. The key point of the New Covenant or the New Testament is that your relationship with Christ is no longer based on your performance. It is no longer based on, Have you attained? Are you good enough? Because the law never made anything perfect. The law was all about just, yep, you failed. yup, you're a sinner. Yes, God is holy, and yes, you are not. And it's just, it's just beating that point of emphasis over and over again because you can never truly understand the depths of your depravity, and you can never truly understand the riches of Christ's holiness. But you can be broken over your sins, and you can be in awe of God's holiness. But the New Covenant, the New Testament, is when God says, hey, guess what? My son took care of it. He took care of all the consequences and took care of the punishment. He took care of the death that you deserve. And so there's a priesthood in place. There's a mediator between us to bring you into this presence of holiness. It is no longer about can you work your way into the presence of God and can you you cut a deal with the priest to offer a sacrifice that's going to make you in the favor of God. It's about Jesus Christ being seated at the right hand of God saying, I'm here. And and Satan is, he's called the accuser of the brethren, and we sometimes think of it as a courtroom scene, which is fairly accurate, but we sometimes think of God the Father as an indecisive judge. And Satan brings his accusations against us and points out all the reasons why we're sinners, and Jesus brings out all the arguments in our favor, and God sits there and is like, well, hmm, you know, he, he had a good week, but he did have a bad month, and that's not how it works. Satan brings accusations, absolutely, and He doesn't even have to lie about us, right? Like, it's kind of the unfortunate part is everything he says about us is pretty much true, right? Like, we're pretty awful, right? And and he brings it, he's like, you know, they did this, and this, and this, and this, and that was just before 10 o'clock in the morning. And God says, yeah, they really did, and the punishment for that is death. What should we do about it? You got any thoughts? Jesus Christ says, yeah. Punishment's death. I already paid it. I already died. And God says, you got anything else you want to add Satan? Shut up and get out of here. Right? The, the, the punishment is completed. And so the, the, the emphasis of the new covenant is not about what do you have to do. It's about what has God done. And so the role of a faithful Christian in a New Testament context is not what do I need to do. It's how do I know God more? Christianity is not about doing. It's about being being in the presence of God, being in fellowship with the Lord, being in relationship with the Lord. And that's what this author is emphasizing. Okay? It is about having the law of God in our mind and in our hearts. It's not about our external performance. It's about what is God doing? The mark of a mature Christian is not their behavior. It's, their, it's the depth of their relationship with the Lord. And that'll drive behavior. That'll impact their, their character. Sure. But it's always that relationship impacts behavior. We never approach it as Christians saying, I want my behavior to change my relationship. Now sometimes, yes, sometimes there are things that you are doing that are stupid and you just need to stop. Okay? But that's, but that's because if you're doing that, you're demonstrating that you really have no idea what kind of relationship you're able to have. And so you're just cutting yourself off from it. So it's like, yeah, you're being stupid. Stop it. But not stop it so that you can be in the presence of God. Stop it because you have access to the presence of God. Why would you waste that access on something so worthless? So that's, that's the point. that The priesthood of Christ is eternal. It's sufficient. It's no longer about our performance. It's about the goodness of Christ. Verse 9. Then indeed, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So he's making a point that the old covenant had value but its value was in pointing us to something greater. And he'll carry the idea out here as we jump on. But he's saying, look, you had all these things in the the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple, and they were all significant. They all had value, and their value was because, verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So he says the the articles of worship in the tabernacle were important. They were symbolic for the present time. They had a role. And we still need to understand this as, as Christians. The Old Testament, the law, the covenant, it all has a role. It's all important. There's a reason we teach through the entire Bible. We just read the book of Joel on Sunday. Right? That's an Old Testament book, and we read it because it has value. And its value is to point us... To Christ. Okay, but he says these things were symbolic for a time. They were pointing us to Christ. And notice he says in the end, until the time of reformation. All these things. The tabernacle. The holy place. The, holiest, the holy of holies. The priesthood. The sacrifices. They were all about reformation. Now reformation is a really depressing way to live your life. You try to reform your habits and reform yourself, and reform your morals, that's an awful lot of you doing things, right? And I'm going to make myself better, and we're going to get through this, and, and, you know, just a little bit of willpower, and self-help, and self-love, and self-whatever else it is, right? The Old Testament, the the old idea of earn your way to the presence of God is a demonstration of our inability. But its emphasis is reformation, okay? The New Testament is about Transformation. 2 Corinthians says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The Old Testament is not about making bad people good or good people better or reforming criminals or fixing society. The New Testament is about you were one way and now you are going to be, not changed, transformed so completely that you are a new creation. You're not just like, a better you, you're a new creation. The whole thing is different, okay. Paul talks about the old man and the new man because he is like, Before I was like, I am, I have been two separate people in my life, and I have the same body, but I was two separate people because I am now a new creation. I have not been reformed by what Christ did, I have been transformed, okay. So, the Old Testament had a point, but its emphasis was reformation. And especially as this author is writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted because of all the persecution they were facing from their Jewish brethren to say, maybe we should just go back and keep the law and life would be simpler. He's saying, no, life will not be simpler. You try and go back to making yourself live by good habits after you received Christ, you're not making your life simpler. You're making yourself miserable. You are setting yourself up for a lifetime of failure because your life now is about knowing Christ as a new creation. It is not about doing good things to make God like you. It is about recognizing the fact that God already loves you and has already brought you into fellowship and relationship with Him. So, verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Now, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He makes a point here that's not super abstract, but kind of abstract. And that is that scripture references in several places the idea that what we experience here is a shadow of what's actually coming. Okay, we talk about it in heaven, but understand that there's there's an implication in scripture that what we often define as heaven is not just like This weird spiritism thing—it's actually a physical existence, but it's physical in the sense that we don't understand it. Okay, it's physical, it's real, it's 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 going to be tangible. But how exactly? No idea, right? Like Revelation talks about, there's a new Jerusalem. It's a thousand miles wide, and a thousand miles long, and a thousand miles tall. And we're going to live there. We're going to live in a city—a city that's a thousand miles tall, which implies a little bit of flight ability in there somewhere. So if somehow our new, the new earth has the ability for humans to fly, whatever it is, I'm obviously kind of coming up short in my imagination, right? The idea is that there's, what we have on earth is a picture and a symbol and a type of what's really coming. And so he says, look, Jesus Christ did not go into the holy of holies in the temple in the earthly Jerusalem to pay for sins. He went into the real temple as the real high priest in the real Jerusalem and paid for the sins. He didn't bother with the tradition. He just went straight to the top. Okay, that's the point of emphasis he's making. So yeah, all the Old Testament has, has value, but it's all pointing to the real reality of what's coming. Okay, heaven is not abstract. Heaven is so real, we can't stomach it right now. okay. It, it, it's not that it's, it's, it's weird and out there, it's that we are so finite in our ability to comprehend that it would blow us up if we tried to understand it. So the Lord graciously has made us stupid enough that we don't get the whole picture. Okay, and so, But the idea is that Jesus Christ didn't just do it the old-fashioned way. He, basically, he didn't just fix the Levitical priesthood, he blew the lid off of the entire thing. He didn't go into the temple, he went into the real temple. He wasn't in Jerusalem, he was in the real Jerusalem. And that's why he's continuing this point of emphasis. He's a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, according to a better and higher priesthood than what had been given in the Old Testament. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hiss up and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you, then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. His basic point is this if you have somebody's last will and testament, when is it going to effect? when they die, right? That's kind of what generally sets things in motion, right? The death of the testator enacts the testament. And he's just making a point here that basically the transition point from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the death of Christ. When Jesus was the priest and the sacrifice, and in that moment somehow or other also the king and the man and God. All at once, in this insane moment that we cannot possibly comprehend, right there is switched. Right there, it was not about the Old Testament. It was not about your reformation. It was about the transformation that's available through Christ. And that's why Jesus could tell the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Because it happened right then. The man believed in Christ and the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient for every sin he had ever committed. Verse 23, we're almost done here we actually not doing that bad, all things considered. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, same ideas earlier, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So he's making that point again that Jesus Christ did not, he, he wasn't trying to, you know, modify or one-up the Levitical priesthood. He was acting as priest according to a better priesthood and therefore a one-time perfect sacrifice. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of our sins. Okay, Because he was offering it according to a higher form of priesthood, according to a higher law, according to a higher priesthood. He didn't go into the holy place. He went into the real holy place into the presence of God and having paid the sacrifice having died for our sins he sat down he is not now pacing sweating it out on our behalf hoping we can pull through hoping that man we could just get our act together because it's not about our acts it's about did he he completed the job right usually when you finish a project you can sit down right like okay we're done. Jesus is sitting because the job's done. He finished it up. He, he took care of it. It's not like, oh, great, now I've got to go down and fix this one too. You know, I've got another problem. and, and it's Gosh, you know. Uh, you know his, his sacrifice was sufficient. And the author says he's not like a, a Levitical high priest who's just got to keep offering over and over. Jesus doesn't have to die once a year because he was he sacrificed. His death was a sacrifice according to a higher priesthood. And so that, according to that priesthood, his sacrifice was sufficient. And then, incidentally, and this is, it feels stupid in a sense because it's kind of coming off at the end. But the author makes a point that is worth noting. And he says, it's appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. He's making a point here that's very real, and that is that Christ's death once was sufficient. Because after death comes judgment. Jesus died. God said, "Hey, you're still holy." He didn't actually say it like that, but Jesus' death brought him to that place of, of the judgment of God. Where the judgment of God was, you are so holy and so perfect that your death right there could atone for every other sin that's ever been committed. If someone will repent and put their faith in you. But the author makes a point that's just worth bearing. Bearing out, he says it's appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. Okay? Doctrinally, as biblical Christians, this is what it means to believe. This is what we believe about death. Once you die, you're judged. And so just as a Christian, just understand reincarnation does not exist. Okay? And understand also, ghost and, and your paranormal activity uh, is, is not real. Okay? You do not have dead relatives coming back to visit you. If you are experiencing something that you think is like that, what you have is demonic activity Trying to psych you out and mess with your mind, okay? But it's appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment. And if you're obsessed with your paranormal stuff, there's a verse in Revelation that implies pretty clearly that zombies will be a real thing. But we'll get there later. Um, so if that's your, if you need something, you can hang on to that. But ghosts are not real. Christian doctrine just gives no room for it. Reincarnation is not real. Christian doctrine leaves no room for it. It's appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment. And he makes that point as he's emphasizing, and this is where we should end, as he's emphasizing that Jesus Christ died once and then entered into the judgment of God because the holiness of God is a judgment, right? God's holiness is judgment because it's, it's a holiness that is so high that it says you are, this is a pass-fail test. You are either perfectly holy and you can be in my presence, or you have a thing that makes you less than holy and you cannot be in my presence, And so to be in the presence of God is to be judged by his holiness. Jesus Christ dies, enters into that judgment, and his holiness is so perfect, so sufficient, so faultless, that it is not just sufficient for him, because he didn't even need it. It's sufficient for every single one of us. And that is why he can offer the invitation and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. That's why he can offer to not just save us, but to transform us. To not just fix us, but to actually give us new life. To not just give us a promise of eternity, but to give us power here and now. That's what Christ does, because he is a better high priest. He is a priest forever, according to the oath of God, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so that ought to bring us immense comfort, right? Your ability to enter into heaven, your hope for eternity, your, your victory here on earth is not hinging on you. It is not hinging on your efforts or your will or your intentions. It is hinging on is what Jesus Christ did sufficient? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. It's so emphatic that the angels declare it for eternity. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord, is the, you know, the Lord of hosts. Who was and is and is to come. Right? His holiness is so sufficient that eternity is not long enough to declare it. And that God desires a relationship with every one of us. He doesn't just desire it, but has actually set in place what's necessary for us to have it. Because he has been so sufficient, so complete, so thorough, that every single one of us has access. And so he invites us and says, come. And do you want that access? And if you do, you're going to find it through Jesus Christ. Your, your works will not do anything. But if you want to know Jesus Christ, and if you want to have the law of God written in your heart, then you're going to find it through Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for the assurance that we have in your word that you are a good God. God, I pray that that truth would just impact our hearts, that we would constantly be growing in our awareness and in our awe of that truth. What an amazing God. Lord, as I think about that that driving us, and changing our hearts, and changing our lives. I pray that it would impact our hearts for others, our hearts for the lost. We are no better. We are sinners saved by grace. Apart from you, we are doomed. We are damned to hell apart from you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your salvation for us. We pray for a stirring in our souls to reach the lost around us with the truth. We've been given an amazing gift of relationship and of fellowship with you through the holiness of Christ. God, we want to see other people recognize that, other people grow in that. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Give us burdens for the lost. Send us out as laborers in the field. God, you tell us in your word that the harvests are there, but there's a shortage of laborers. And so we pray that you would send us out. Reap a harvest of souls eternally. And bring more children into your family. Adopt more of us. Use us, God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and with your power. Go before us, guide us, and lead us. And we thank you for what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And even more so, what he did for us by rising again and proving that he conquered death. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, our King and our Priest and our Mediator and our Savior, that we pray, Amen.